Welcome to the 32nd episode of the Cranky Flyer interview. Today I'm talking to Patrick Quayle, Senior Vice President of Global Network Planning and Alliances for United Airlines. The last time I interviewed Patrick here, it was June of 2020, and uh, I think it's safe to say that the demand environment was slightly less robust. But Patrick was optimistic even then, and he's obviously bullish these days. Let's get into it. Patrick Quayle, uh, thank you for joining me again on uh, on the uh, the Cranky Flyer interview here. The last time we did this was June of 2020, so things are a little different right now, I'd say. Things are much different, Brett, and it is great to be back. I remember joining you in June of 2020. Uh, COVID had just officially kind of begun and things were not looking too good. So it is great to be here in summer of 2023 when everything looks fantastic. That This is good. Now, I will preface this, though. Even in June of 2020, you sounded remarkably optimistic. Uh, and by that, I mean you thought you could actually put some people on an airplane at some point. But, Brett, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, would, I would just say, Brett, that uh, – you know, we were always optimistic. We were the only airline in the world that came up with kind of a different plan. Um, at the time, I was just over international, and I remember pitching to Andrew and Scott, international is going to be where it's at. And so uh, it feels great as an airline to have done something very different than the rest of the industry, which was keep our entire wide-body fleet. And at the time, we came up with a creative pilot deal, which kept all the pilots in their seats. And so because of that, uh, we were able to bounce back quicker. And if you look at us, we use this time to actually plan to be a different airline. And we are now the largest airline across the Atlantic Ocean, which uh, you know is the first time in United's nearly 100-year history. We're the largest in the Atlantic. We're the largest in the Pacific. Uh, and we're now the largest airline around the world and measured on ASM. So things are materially different now in 2023 versus 2019 or 2020 when we entered COVID. Uh, uh, no question that it is materially different. That's for sure. Now let let's start. Let's stick with international for now because you are in charge of international and domestic, and we're going to talk about domestic uh, later. But let's start with international. I think you know it, it's been really interesting to watch the evolution here. Uh, you know, you you tried some non traditional markets in long haul. Uh, you know, just as the pandemic was starting to ease its grip, um, most of those seem to have stuck around. So it sounds like they're they're actually doing okay, and I'd like to hear more about that. Um, it, but you've even pushed that further, and now you're you're getting into uh, some of the counter seasonal flying, big increases in Australia, New Zealand, um, and so I, I wonder if you can talk more about just what what you've seen coming out of the pandemic um, as some of your strongest uh, opportunities. Yeah, so I would I would say a couple of things, Brett. You know, since uh, 2017, when I joined the company, we've added just across the Atlantic, we've added 15 new destinations and a total of over 30 new routes. Um, so if you if you think about it, it's just been a massive expansion, and a vast majority of this has actually been since COVID uh, started. And it's all about experimenting, um, and if we're going to fail, fail quickly. And so. Um, you know, we've gone into more premium leisure routes. We've gone into non-traditional business markets and everything is working. And, you know, you'll see it in our second quarter earnings um, that, 
things are working just as we had anticipated. And it's very strong. And in markets that didn't work, places like Bergen, Norway, uh, we, you know, we did it in one season, we pulled out and we're done. And we, we learned our, our lesson and we have learnings that we can take away from that. Um, on the Pacific side, um, look, again, this was kind of a unique opportunity where United, there's a couple things here. There's United never had a partner in Australia. And so um, our two North American competing airlines each had a partner down there. Um, and we were the the lone airline without a partner. Um, during COVID, we you know worked and we worked hard um, to create a partnership with Virgin. And Virgin is fantastic. They are they are just one of the best airlines out there in the world. They're an amazing partner. We have a very close relationship with them. I uh, think incredibly highly of the whole entire Virgin Australia team. And because of that, it's allowed us to grow Australia rapidly. And we're now the largest airline between North America and Australia, which again. Uh, there's going to be a lot of largest of and first of uh, comments on this podcast, I have a feeling. But uh, we're now the largest airline to and from Australia. Um, and, I, you know, that's a real point of pride because even even myself, who's a very, very, very optimistic person, I never would have thought we'd be larger than the Australian airline based in Sydney. Um, and we actually are. And so that is 100 percent in part because of the relationship we have with Virgin Australia and what we can do together to jointly uh, serve our customers, both in Australia and in North America. Um, and the, the combined force has allowed us to, to grow to a great product. And then obviously we have Air New Zealand um, and New Zealand, and that's you know facilitating our growth in LA, Auckland and uh, San Francisco to Christchurch. Yeah, I was just going to add on Air New Zealand, which also is a big player in Australia. So you have it covered in more ways than one now. Um, and, you know, for those wondering, the uh, Sydney-based airline you're talking about, I believe, is Bonza, right? That's the one you were... No? Okay. No, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was referring to Rex. I don't, Rex. I don't know. I was yeah. close. Sorry. Yeah. Just a little yeah. off. Uh, but that And that is really an important market, right? Because it's, it's the counter-seasonal aspect of it. I mean, you talk about being the largest over the Atlantic, but most of that doesn't work in the winter, right? That's right. That's right. And so we have to be creative, right? Because when we're going out and we're talking to, you know, Jerry, our CFO or Scott or the board on trying to execute purchase agreements for more aircraft and more wide bodies, which, you know, it's, it's public to the whole world, our, our, our Boeing order and our Airbus order, um, we, you have to be able to fly these airplanes profitably year round, right? And so, you know, it's one thing to to make money flying to Rome in the summer. I think I, I famously said that a couple of years ago and got in a little bit of trouble uh, for that. Uh, but <laughs> I said, you know, anyone can make money flying to Rome in the summer, and and some some people didn't like when I made that comment. But uh, it might be your partner Lufthansa who just brought bought ITA, but that's a whole different issue. Yeah, that, uh, that's a whole other that's a whole other <laughs> podcast, my friend. That's a whole other podca uh, podcast. But but look, you have to find a home for the airplane in the winter, and whether it's South Africa whether it's New Zealand, whether it's Australia, those are great places to put the aircraft. The flying is counter-seasonal, um, and it works incredibly well for an airline like United. And that's another question here is where else can you really go counter-seasonal? Um, you know, there's, there's Latin America, um, it, you know, maybe a tougher market for you guys to penetrate, although you do have some partners down there. Um, you know, are there a lot more opportunities? Because it would seem that Australia and New Zealand, with this coming winter's uh, level of service, you, you've got it pretty well covered. Uh, and, you know, whereas Europe is, is just such a massive market. So, you know, where else can you put these wide bodies in the winter? We do have a couple ideas, Brett. I don't want to announce anything on the show because I know for a fact the folks in Dallas and the folks in Atlanta listen to your podcast. Uh, <laughs> so you know, I, I don't, I don't, 
I don't want to just announce everything on here, but but look, I mean, we are adding capacity. We've already added capacity into Buenos Aires. We're going to fly our largest schedule. Uh, we're increasing the Houston Buenos Aires flight. Uh, it used to be daily. It's now going to be 10x this winter. Uh, we can add more into Hawaii. Um, and and you're right. I think I think the Australian market we <laughs> we we have added a lot of capacity there. So we need to to let that absorb it. Um, but I, the team here at United, um, I am confident will come up with, and we do have some great ideas for additional counter-seasonal flying that's probably a little more untraditional than you would think uh, normally, Brett. I'll just, uh, I'll just leave it at that. I'll, I'll leave it at that as a tease. I'll leave it as a tease for you. God, this is all right. Next year on the Cranky Flyer interview with PQ. <laughs> Uh, I do before we go uh, a little more domestic here I I do want to ask a couple more questions so on Europe um, you know London it seems like has been a weaker point you uh, ended the Boston flight that you know admittedly doesn't really fit into your network plan necessarily but can you talk a little bit more about London and what's going on there yeah, look, London London is a long-term asset for United, and London is an incredibly important market, and it does work for us. Um, it, you know, I'll just go back and get, just to, if you go back to to the history of, of kind of our time at, Lond- uh, at London, at United, you know, if you go back to 2017 when we, when we came here, the company was flying, I think it was 16 or 17 flights a day to London, and all of the flights off the East Coast were on the 757 out of Newark, right? So it was this horrible schedule. And I had come from, you know, a Dallas-based carrier where London is the center of the world and, and London is the largest premium market in the world. And it's like, of course, London doesn't work for us. We're flying 757s with really terrible patterns, um, you know, against 777 300 ERs and A380s. No one's going to pick United. And so what we did is we built a, a new product for that. We built the 767 High J aircraft. So it's a 7.6 with a large premium cabin. And the reason we chose that is we don't have a partner in London. And so, you know, if you look at the other two U.S. carriers, each of them has a partner in London and they can benefit from that. and They can fill the back cabin because of that. Um, but if you think about, you know, the banking sector, the the consulting you know, sector and, and all these other these other business people who are traveling back and forth, they want the front of the cabin product. And so we built the 767 High J. It was doing fantastic. And we've been growing our London slot portfolio. This summer, we're flying 23 flights a day uh, from London. That obviously includes the Boston flight, which, as you correctly noted, is coming to an end. Uh, but you know, my point is we've grown the London portfolio and we've designed and built an aircraft for that, the 767 High J. Um, so London does work for us. Unfortunately, London this past winter, this past Q1, um, was a bit soft and it underperformed relative to what our financial goals are. Uh, but overall, if you look at the entirety of the London portfolio, London does do very well for United. It's an important market. And I think we're situated a little bit differently and uniquely because for us, London is the end of the line, whereas for the other two U.S. carriers, they have a partner there that they can go beyond London with. Is some of the issue what well, you know? I've long said that slots make airlines do stupid things. Uh, just the existence <laughs> of slots. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so is that some of the issue? That just the way that capacity goes, just because of the slot situation, that maybe there's more in there than there should be, and things like that. Is this something you think will sort itself out, or do you think it'll be more demand-based recovery? No, I think you're you're 100 percent right, Brett, which is why I love reading the the cranky flyer uh, articles and everything like that, that that you write and that Courtney does as well with the other uh, newsletter you send out, because 
London, the situation in London is the slot requirements require every airline to use it. And so if you look at London in the summer of 23, I want to say capacity is up like 15 percent uh, versus 2019. But if you look at the rest of Europe, excluding London, capacity is actually flat or slightly negative. I don't know the number off, off the top of my head. But my point is there's like a 15 to 16 point gap between London capacity and the rest of Europe capacity. And that just speaks to the dynamic what you're which uh, you're talking about. Okay. And now let's shift to the Pacific briefly here. So obviously the, the big hole in the Pacific here is still China where it services anemic at best. Um, you were obviously a, a huge player in China uh, before the pandemic. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that because I would imagine that the lack of Chinese carrier capacity has done wonders for things like Singapore and beyond flights, which you can serve with uh, with ANA with your joint venture, you know, throughout Southeast Asia, just having a lot less capacity. So how do you view China, which I, I don't expect to be resolved anytime soon? You know, is it a significant negative for the company or, you know, is it offset enough by some of the benefits elsewhere in Asia? Look, I, I don't want to really comment on on that other than to say, like, I, I think, you know, United was the largest airline to China pre-pandemic. Um, this is a geopolitical issue. And so um, we have a responsibility as as Americans to, you know, to root for and support the, the U.S. government. And the U.S. government is playing a larger geopolitical role here. And so it would be really selfish to put United Airlines interests ahead of the U.S government interests. And so I support the administration and how they're handling it. And as they figure out China and everything from semiconductors to the broader geopolitical situation, aviation bilateral will be resolved. But I think it's going to take time. And, you know, we're here offering air service, you know, to our ability and we'll when and if that increases, we'll obviously, you know, do the increase. But this is not anything we're going to push the government for, and I don't think it's our role or uh, really that role of anyone in, in the in the states. All right, and but the rest of Asia seems to be doing pretty well for the most part. The rest of Asia is is doing quite well, and so I think you know if you look at the network again, we have the rest of the network, excluding China, is actually much larger than it was in 2019. Um, and so we've look, we've taken we've 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 taken the airplanes and we've allocated them um, to other routes in Asia. Um, and again, the rest of the network is much larger than it was in 2019. And we're just going to wait patiently as, as things play out as they need to. Yeah. Uh, before we move to domestic, I keep teasing that. We, I'm just never going to get there. <laughs> it's terrible. I'm very curious what you're going to ask about domestic. So, Well, uh, you know, but, but I do want to talk about Emirates and India and all that right now. So, absolutely. you know, how has the Emirates um, partnership, I mean, you have the Dubai flight now. How, how has that been progressing? Uh, great. You know, I, I would say this, um, much like I said about Virgin Australia, uh, Emirates, the entire Emirates organization, fantastic. You know, from Sir Tim Clark all the way down, um, nothing but first class, top notch people. Um, that flight is doing exactly as it was forecast. It's doing really well. It has great connectivity. You know, Dubai, um, is a really magical hub. And, you know, again, I give that team a lot of credit. They, built that airline from nothing from like, you know, the mid eighties, right. With, with, a, I want to say like a used 727 from PIA um, <laughs> into the juggernaut that it is today. And so the connectivity that you can get from the Dubai hub is second to none. It serves the entire um, Indian subcontinent. 
it serves the Middle East, um, and it serves obviously uh, Eastern Africa. And it's and it's and that flight gives us a lot of unique content that we didn't have before, and so it's it's working really really well, and we have a great relationship with them. All right, now let's go domestic. So. <laughs> 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 going from Emirates, which has no domestic network, to United, which has a very large one. So uh, domestic has been a mess, right? We, we've had all these issues with regional carriers, with their ability to deliver capacity. Um, you know, small city service has been lost. You stepped in. Wh- when did you take over domestic? It was about a year ago or something? It was about a now? year ago. It was the summer, okay. of, uh, summer of 22. I got domestic. Okay. So you step into domestic and at that point, I assume it's more just the initial shock of, oh my gosh, our regionals are not able to deliver the capacity that we were hoping for. Um, last summer was was really tough for that, I think. But what did you come in at with your long-term goals for the domestic network uh, You know, when you took over? Look, I, I think for me, I'm you know I'm a pretty simple guy, and for me, it's focusing on the basics. It's the blocking and the tackling. And for me, what is that? That's patterns. It's patterns of service. It's flying. It's cities that we're serving. Um, it's connectivity. It's it's you know it's really creating a schedule that people want to buy. And when I think about what was United's biggest weakness over the years, it was this reliance on 50 seat regional jets. Quite candidly, Brett. And oh yeah, you know. When I came when I came up here from Dallas, I'll never forget. Um, you know, I, I came up from Dallas, and I, I still obviously had a home in, in in Dallas, and I was working in, in Chicago during the week. And it would be a, a CRJ seven hundred, and I would look off. You know, look at you go to O'Hare, and the flight before it is uh, my my former employer with an A three twenty one, and the flight after it is like a seven eighty seven. You know, rotating through the Dallas hub, or you could choose the United Airlines operated by SkyWest CRJ seven hundred, and it's just you're never going to win. You're never going to win with that product. And so what we've been doing, and it's actually a bit of a blessing, you know, the regional shortfall has been a major problem. And I'm not going to, you know, paper over that and say it's not. But what it's allowed us to do is really accelerate our long-term plans, which is getting mainline jets into mainline markets. And so markets like Dallas, markets like Atlanta, all these places that before were 70 or 50 seat regional jets need to be flown with a 737 or an Airbus narrowbody. And so we're accelerating that. And, you know, my approach to domestic and, and look, we have a great team here that's highly motivated and wants to do the right thing um, is really focusing on patterns and connectivity and building good bank structures and getting the network to 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 function the way it really should, because ultimately the consumer, um, the consumer is buying a schedule and they're never going to get a chance to get on our cool airplanes and see the seat back IFE if we don't have metal in the market at the times they want to travel. So that is the Atlantas, the Dallases. You talk about that small city service, though. You have shed. I, I don't know the number right now, but it's been a very significant number. I know a lot of that is is SkyWest with uh, some of their pro rate flying, um, but you know that was something that was smaller cities was something you talked about before the pandemic. Uh, you, the airline, not you specifically, yeah. um, about a place, you know, it needed to be rebuilt after years of, of neglect, really, in a lot of those cities. So how do you approach that in, in this world today where regional uh, capacity is more constrained? Uh, you know, there's much more focus on upgaging and, and trying to serve the best you can with the, the midsize and larger cities. How do you think about the smaller cities today? 
Yeah, look, so just to give an order of magnitude, we've cut roughly 40 domestic cities, Brett. Um, and that's so that, I mean, that's quite material, right? That, that's yeah. really quite material. I think there's a couple of things that have changed, though. Um, one is the economics of the regional uh, footprint and the regional jet. And if you think about the the pay raises that have been given and the changes in the regional regional structure, um, you know, chasm is is. Well, I don't want to say anything I probably shouldn't say on here, but Casm is <laughs> materially. I was, I was about to quote a number, but I I, I best Whoa. not. I don't know if it's in the I don't know if it's in the public arena, but Casm Casm. We X can all is, do the math, right? Like yeah, yeah. The, the pilot up, pay increases, and, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. You, you you take the pilot pay, you push it up. You take the jets, the jet utilization, you pull it down, right? And you're, you're pulling utilization down. You're putting you know costs up. The Casm up is up materially. Um, and so the economics to a lot of these cities would not have worked anyway. That's the first point I make. The second point I make is that, you know, regional communities do play an important role and it will ultimately right size. We're going to be, you know, we will be um, serving. Well, I guess what I'd say is two things. One, we'll be serving a large number of regional cities with the right equipment, with the 70, 75 seat jets that they should have been on there instead of 50 seat jets. And number two, we're, we're going to be putting 737s, A319s into markets that traditionally had the 75-seat jets on there. And so, you know, there is a RASM premium for flying to smaller jet or smaller communities. We just have to get the right jet on there with the right economics. Um, but overall, look, we're a large U.S. carrier, uh, you know, domestically. We're obviously not the largest carrier if you just look at domestic footprint. There's a, there's a few airlines that are bigger than us domestically. But but, you know, in its entirety, United is the largest airline. And because of that, we need to grow our domestic footprint. We have planes to grow our domestic footprint. We have, you know, orders. I think we have something like 500 narrow bodies coming online in the next couple of years, which is going to allow us to fix the patterns and fix the schedules. And then again, redeploy these uh, these assets and cascade them back down into the smaller communities. So I think we're in this weird position right now, Brett, from a timing perspective, where the RJs fell out rather quickly because of the various issues. But we don't yet have the deliveries from Boeing and Airbus. And so it's created a bit of a valley or a trough. And unfortunately, we had to reduce service. As we get the Boeing and the Airbus deliveries, that will allow us to rebuild the domestic connectivity and allow us to go back into some of these markets with the right equipment and a better product. And maybe some of them, but still, ultimately, it sounds like, I mean, with the the economics uh, on the regional side, I mean, some of these cities probably will not return is my guess, that is right? No, no, you're 100% right. You're 100% right. But my point is we had to cut service to about 40, 40 cities. I guess we go back into, I don't know, 10, 15 of those 40 cities, but we're still going to maintain a smaller footprint than we were previously. And how does something like landline fit into this with the bus, bus service as a way for you to maintain connectivity to cities? Is that something that you're seeing success with? I know it's still a relatively small footprint for you guys, but... Um, you know, it's it's been going long enough now. You should have a pretty decent idea, I would think, of what yeah, its opportunities I, look, are. Look, I, I think I think uh, landline's an interesting concept. I think that um, you know David is a, is a really smart guy. I uh, I quite like David, uh, and I think that it provides good connectivity within a a pretty tight radius of a hub. And so, um, you know, we we tried it out in Denver. It's it's a it's a unique concept. Um, in, in New York, where I think folks are more used to buses and kind of intermodal transportation, um, it's doing better. Um, and so I think it's an interesting concept. And I'm, you know, I'm quite confident that, again, David and his team will 
will adapt and, and take it to the next level. Uh, but for us right now, it's just it's a real small part of the network, uh, but it's certainly an interesting concept. And presumably it would it would change in stature if you're able to to get TSA work done at the spoke uh, and can make it a true connection in the hub. Uh, Absolutely. Which I know they're working on diligently, but but you do see that as an opportunity potentially to bring some of these cities back in that that may not otherwise come back into the network. If it's within a tight radius, yes. I mean, yeah. you're not going to get someone on a bus for three hours. You're, 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 you're just not. But, you know, like a Newark to Allentown or something like that, that does work quite well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so again, yeah, a tight radius of a hub, I think it, I think it works. I think it's a novel concept and it's a, a way to allow that connectivity. Um, you know, maybe like a I'm spitballing here, but like a, a Beaumont, you know, Beaumont to Houston, stuff like that would work. Um, but you're not going to. I, I don't know. You, you just you're not going to get anything that's really farther out there. Sure, sure. It makes sense. Um, so then the question is, how can we serve those other cities? And I guess that'll still be determined at some future point. You know, maybe that's when the uh, Hart Aerospace uh, uh, electric regional prop aircraft comes in into the equation. Brett, I don't know. Well, you still need pilots, and the the, <laughs> <laughs> the pay rates are still pretty high for. Maybe, what is that, a 19-seater still, or did that grow That is again? a 19-seater, yeah. 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 So we'll see about that. Um, all right, well, before we go, uh, I do want to talk about Denver a little bit. You guys have been pushing very hard on Denver, uh, not just from a network side, but from a marketing side. <laughs> it, yep. It's been, it's been a, a real focus, it would appear, in the domestic network. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the dynamics of Denver right now and uh, what the prospects are uh, and, and how that's all looking. Yeah, look, Denver's a unique, uh, unique market here uh, for us. Um, you know, I guess what I would say, you know, more broadly is one, you know, for the first time we've we've become the largest local carrier there, um, which is which is a really big deal. We were out there, you know, uh, with Scott and the team just a couple weeks ago. Two, you know, we we offer incredibly broad service, right? And so we've grown, you know, again. Just go back six years ago when it came. We have, there was one long haul international flight, and that was to Tokyo. Um, we now have you know three flights we've added across the, the Atlantic uh, to supplement that one flight to Tokyo, and then we've added a number of markets in Latin America. Um, and so we have we have service to I think forty five different states, and um, just from Denver alone, um, as well as Canada. So there's a very very broad service pattern there. It's ours also our fastest growing hub. Um, you know, you know our peak departures. I think we're roughly 450, 460 departures right now this summer, uh, and it's number two right after Chicago. Um, and it's a place where we, you know, we believe in long term, which is why we've been adding gates. And our and our gate footprint there is growing up to I think it's 90 gates. I think in 2024 is when that comes online. I I could be wrong with the year, but the point is we're we're getting more gates, and we get the aircraft to grow out there. It's it's fantastic, and I think traditionally it's just been underutilized. You know, if you think about its position um, in the western part of the United States, with the local market and the flow connectivity, it has the ability to do so much more than what it traditionally has done, and that's why we're really bullish on it. And I think in terms of rebuilding the domestic network, I mean that has to be a key a key part of that, right? Um, Absolutely. But, you know, interestingly, um, you know, our connectivity is down across all the hubs as the regional jets have fallen out, with the exception of Denver. Mm. Denver connectivity is actually still there. We have not seen a loss in Denver connectivity because we've been so focused on that. And so, again, when you combine <clears throat> when you combine 
Denver in conjunction with Houston and Chicago, those three hubs actually all work quite well together and we can flow and reflow traffic that's particularly going, you know, east-west over one of the other hubs. And so we can balance that traffic appropriately. And Chicago is another one that I'm, I'm pretty interested in, especially with, you know, there's significant uh, terminal work coming soon here. Well, soon-ish. Uh, you know, a lot of potential growth opportunities there. Um, you've seen maybe some competition pull back there as well. Um, you know, how are you thinking about the uh, the hometown here these days? Yeah, I think I see I see Chicago staying pretty stable. Um, mm. You know, Chicago. Look, Chicago has a number of challenges. Chicago is a, is a great market. It's a great local market, but also you know the winters are pretty brutal, um, and it and it's a tough operating climate. Um, but you know, so from a from a market size perspective, in terms of corporate and you know domestic and international traffic, it's it's one of the largest in the country. I think it's like New York, LA, then Chicago, off if I'm remembering correctly. But you know, I, I don't see really anything materially changing um, with the competitive landscape or dynamic in Chicago. I think, you know, Chicago capacity ebbs and it flows. And if you look at different points in time, it looks different ways. And and I, I think the market is pretty stable in Chicago. OK. All right. Good. Well, uh, then why don't we leave it there? This will be a, a good place to cut it. Um, so three years from now we'll check in again or something and <laughs> yeah yeah why don't we why don't we why don't we touch base and maybe next time you know brett next time in person i really with like a big microphone larry king live suspenders <laughs> and, you know you can just kind of <laughs> lean over the microphone and uh and ask questions in person well this has been the, you know the goal of one of these days to do a real across the aisle interview where we're actually like sitting on an airplane and, and doing that that would be that would be a lot of fun. Brett, uh, join for an inaugural. Join for an inaugural. We, you've, you've had ample opportunity. We have launched so many long-haul international flights. You have ample opportunity. Uh, and, and yeah, join for an inaugural. We'll do this live sitting across the aisle. How, okay, how about this? How about you inaugurate service to Long Beach? And we can do it there. <laughs> oh, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll leave it there. Thanks, PQ. <laughs> Anytime, buddy. Take care of yourself. I think it's safe to say Patrick is still pretty optimistic, wouldn't you? Still, I'm not going to hold out hope for that Long Beach inaugural. Anyway, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.